Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Okay, so James, this is the longest movie yet that you've had us watch. Yeah, well, historical epics are often known for long. Thank, no, thank God that Lawrence of Arabia didn't have a famous wife. Uh, yes, I think it covered just about everything, but also not as much as you would have thought. Submit, submit. Won't you ever fight? I can't fight you. My baby's dying. There are no medicines. Cry to Jesus! I see things. I have power. I cure the sick. I am a vessel of the Lord. Rasputin drinks, takes bribes. He is an adulterer. He's a saint. Little men always abuse them. I could show you the police reports. Small little men. People say he sleeps with you. What do I care what people think? Murder, arson, terror. Shall we start at the beginning? Yes, I understand you wanted to start with a particular first shot of the film. It's just the eye contact between the two of them at the beginning, when she's, I guess, giving birth, but just seems to be, like, sighing a lot, dramatically. (laughs) And, I don't know, it's just almost excruciating. (laughs) You know, there's that phrase, too posh to push? Yes. She's doing that, but, like, without the C-section, she just, like, the baby just kind of plops out. And it's just Alexander there. No no doctors. We don't need anyone. Yes, I'm pretty sure. I mean, not to get into the horrible, normal historical accuracy, but in general, the men weren't there. Is it possible this is post-birth? Possibly. I, I, okay. It's very unclear. Just to suffice it to say, at the beginning, not really sure what's happening. A lot of eye contact. Many men with great moustaches. Yeah, I think the moustaches really were the great, the main character of the film. I think we should probably sort of start, for those of you that didn't watch the film, unlike The Last Stars and other stories, and unlike the book it's based on, the story starts in 1905, well, around 1905, with the birth of Alexei, with the start of the Russo-Japanese War, which you would have thought, possibly, would give them a little bit more time to tell the story. The film is, as you said in the introduction, three hours long, just about. covers a huge amount of history. I thought a really interesting scene right at the beginning is when they're discussing naming Alexei. Or I think they call him Alexis a lot in the film. I think it's one of those things where it depends on how you translate the Russian. It's really, I think, illustrative of the characters of both Nicholas and Alexandra that Nicholas insisted on calling him Alexei, who was his favourite Tsar. And he's his favourite Tsar because Nicholas is the kind of man he is. He was known as being gentle. He wasn't angry. He wasn't particularly, like, magisterial. He was just kind of quiet, which is kind of the man that Nicholas was. And then Alexandra suggests calling him Alexander, 
um, which was the name of Nicholas's father, Alexander III. Alexander II was the man who freed the serfs, and Alexander I was the one who defeated Napoleon. So there's sort of a lot of lineage there of really big, strong, powerful, reforming, great men. And, uh, and they Nic- went for gentle. And none, none of them were particularly <laughs> gentle. And then uh, Nicholas was like, no, don't like those. I want, I want the gentle person. And I think the beginning of the film does a good job of setting that up as well, that they're sort of very family-oriented. There's that scene with where he's getting briefed on the war, but he's looking out the window at his children instead of paying attention, <laughs> which, as things went, maybe wasn't the best use of his of his time. Yeah, I think they really spent some time at the beginning of the film really setting up the central relationship of the film. You know, it's, Nicholas, it's called Nicholas and Alexandra in the film is at its best, I think, when it's concentrating on that central relationship. There are some really nice scenes with them as a family throughout the film, and particularly in, in that bit. A bit quite soon after he was born, obviously, they discovered he had haemophilia. And there was quite sort of a powerful scene when the doctor was explaining haemophilia. Although, Caitlin, I think you could see me getting tense and annoyed during that scene. You started scribbling frantically in your notebook. <laughs> yes, well, what annoyed me was, and it was just hilarious cinematic mansplaining, that the doctor is explaining to Nicholas and Alexandra about haemophilia. And they are, obviously, they need to explain this for the viewer. However, they were saying this to Alex as if she'd never heard of haemophilia despite the fact that her brother had it and died from it. One of her uncles, one of Victoria's sons, mm. sort of died from it. Huge numbers of people in the family have had it. She would have been intensely aware of haemophilia. And I just think, you know, you have to give it a certain amount of allowance. This is a film made in the early 70s. It's not the greatest time for cinematic feminism. But I think it would have been much better if, for example, the Doctor had said that and then maybe Alex had explained it to Nicholas. I'm sure he probably was aware of it as well. But just sort of that scene explaining it to Alex was uh, a little bit jarring. Although I have to say, the way that it was done, I thought um, Jeanette Sussman, who plays Alex, did a really good job in the scene. It just the history of it slightly annoyed me. But also I thought a bit of good history they had was finding out that he had haemophilia, that thing that they, no, no one can know. And throughout the film, you see these scenes where Alexei is ill, uh, he's in trouble, and you see them having to put this like brave face on meeting with people, having to go on social occasions, being worried, and then that immediately dropping... There's one scene a bit later in the film where they, they're sort of walking back after hearing that he's ill, sort of slowly around people and then sort of burst into a run to run up to the, the bedroom. I thought, again, I thought that was a really, really, really good scene. And it was well mirrored later in the film as well. That was one of the good, some good filmmaking. So we sort of move on to the sort of the revolution of 1905. The film's slightly out of order here. With the 1905 revolution, so we see lots of students running around, lots of people getting very angry. Seen in a factory, I think. I never quite understand what that place was. It was was many things. (laughs) It seemed to be both a sewer and a factory and also a homeless shelter all at once. Generic slum, James. Generic slum. I guess. It was just like, it was very weird. Lots of characters we see multiple times without any personalities or names or backstories that... One feels like one could have done without a three-hour film. <laughs> I know. It, it, yeah. it was a film that really did try to cram everything in without doing an awful lot. And then the bloody Sunday scene, I thought, was really well-filmed. 
the crowd marching. They had quite a lot of bits right there. They were carrying images of the Tsar. You know, it was led by a priest, Father Gapon, although they never named him. And then the, the soldiers sort of firing warning shots and eventually firing into the crowd. Something that I didn't really get into in the podcast, and also I did not get, the film did not go into it in any way, although those of you that have watched The Last Stars will know about this. Father Gapon, the priest who led the, the march that on Bloody Sundays, is an amazingly interesting character that I wish the film had like hinted at a bit. They did, they did everything, they covered everything else, couldn't they have at least given this five seconds? Was this guy leading leading this march he was seen as like the friend of the worker yet was also a secret spy for the Tsarist secret police so he was like constantly playing both sides eventually didn't work out well for him in the end I think the scene directly after that one I thought was even better really with Nicholas talking to is it Laurence Olivier La- yes, yes, so that's Laurent, yeah. with uh, Sergei Vita, the mm. uh, the Prime Minister. Where he was like, oh, why wasn't I told? And they're like, well, what, what would you have done? <laughs> you don't do anything, do you, Nikki? <laughs> it was very well acted. Yes, I thought, I mean, you, you, you hire Laurence Olivier, you get some Laurence Olivier quality acting, mm. don't you? Yeah, I think that was, that was really good. I mean, there's a theme in the film of frustrated Prime Ministers coming to Nicholas. They don't really show any of the crap prime ministers. They generally show the good ones. So they have they have Vita played by Olivier, probably come and deliver they had Stalipen coming along and, and other there's an awful lot of they play up in the film, I think a lot of the sort of the experts saying giving good advice and then Nicholas listening to the wrong people. Speaking of the wrong people, uh, just after that scene with Vitter in that, we have the introduction of Rasputin, played by Tom Baker. Oh, you know, I was surprised at how delightful he was. Yeah, you're never quite sure what you're going to get with Tom Baker, and also you're never quite sure what you're going to get with, a, with Rasputin. Usually in these things, they play up him as almost a sort of pantomimish character, because he kind of was a pantomimish character. Mm. But he's actually, much of his depiction is surprisingly restrained in many ways. There are some which aren't, but that opening scene where he's introduced to Alex, I thought was a really interesting scene. So for everyone who hasn't seen the film, perhaps, um, they're at a, was it, it was Nikki's um, mother's... Birthday Birthday party? party, Yes. And she didn't really want to go and she was feeling, sort of sitting off by herself, feeling really isolated and didn't want to talk to anyone. And Rasputin comes and talks to her and he's really nice. And I think you can sort of see how she was taken by him. I think the sort of the the magic, quote-unquote, about Masterpiece is often what people focus on. People talk about his eyes and that. Whereas this, they don't really do that. They play on Rasputin as this sort of man who sort of comforted, comforted Alexei, but also comforted Alex mm. and, and was that sort of the friend, the family. And they very much show the, you know, this is the, the, sign, the side of him that he showed Alex. And then we see later some some weird hedonistic scenes. Very weird. <laughs> and other people telling Alex, including Nikki, that about, about him. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't believe him, doesn't believe them because that's not the man that she mm. sees. I mean, Tom Baker's eyes are so blue. How could he be bad? <laughs> but I do think they know, I, I still think despite that, I don't know if they quite got Rasputin in the film. He wasn't in it very much, to be honest. No, well, no, no one really was. But he so he shows up in this scene. There's one or two scenes of him healing Alexei. Oh, there's. The, I'm sorry. I just had a flashback to the weird scene with with the hay and 
when he's on his horse. <laughs> yeah, really weird. <laughs> so, like, normally you when you see Rasputin in things like The Last Stars or other films, they play up sort of sort of weird sort of mystical group sex stuff that he got up to. They talk about sort of him almost trading sex for favours. But this one was like he was just sort of drunk in a field, naked in a haystack, but was on a cart. Yes. With, with some ladies. Were there ladies there? There was, there was a few ladies, yeah. Okay, maybe that makes more sense. I don't remember the ladies being there. But it was in, sort of in the countryside. It was, just, it was just kind of... They felt that they needed to get, like, one scene of Rasputin being, you know, Rasputin. A bit lewd. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but maybe the 1970s of it all, sort of. <laughs> well, like, yeah. Caligula, I think, was made in the 70s, True. so you can't... Uh, the 70s had some weird films just as much as any other decade. So you, this film has... Like a litany of side stories, because it could never really fo- decide on what the film was going to focus on. And so one of the big side stories, which is weird if you think about the story of Russia, is the communists. So you have sort of two scenes leading up to the Second World War, sort of with Lenin. You see him meeting Stalin for the first time. You see a bit of Trotsky, and they they have this scene. In a big, big meeting of of, sort of, the, of all the different communist parties and factions, and again, I don't think I went into it in the podcast. This is like one of, considered like one of the most important meetings in the sort of the history of communism, really the history of the twentieth century, which is when Lenin sort of took control of his part of the communists called the Bolsheviks, and that meeting was really the way that split happened. His friend, a lot of his old friends and comrades wanted to have a looser... Not a loose definition of communism, but let more people in. Whereas Lenin was like, no, we needed, like, a dedicated hardcore vanguard. So there was a big split between the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks. I'm sure many listeners will know what I'm talking about. I'm not going to go into it in great detail. If you're interested, there are a billion books But it wasn't really covered in the movie. Well, no. So they had, like, this whole scene with characters that are barely introduced... About, actually, about... they never actually say who Lenin's wife is. She's just around. Yeah. There's like lady around, but she's never. I don't think she's ever named in the film. No, I'll come back to that in a second. But they have this this meeting. They say, "I oh, do you have the votes? Or I'm going to vote for this. Vote for that." They don't actually talk about what the vote's about, about why it's important. I don't think they ever say who won as well. Actually, it's just a scene of whipping votes. Yeah, <laughs> it's like a scene in the West Wing, <laughs> like Lenin acting as like a Josh. Yeah. But yeah, so Lenin's wife again. She's a really interesting character. If I ever go and do, um, like, a series on, like, revolutionary... Well, certainly revolutionary communists, but any revolutionaries in general. Um, Nadia Krupskaya, uh, no, she was a proper sort of communist thinker and revolutionary in her own right. Yet in the film, she sort of seems just to be, you know, Lenin's wife who's just sort of there. In the way, perhaps, as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, I found that a bit frustrating. And I was like, if you're going to do the communists, do the communists. Like, have it, like, play the contrast between sort of Nikki and Lenin. But if you're going to do also all these other things and then have, like, Five or six scenes with Lenin, but none of them particularly in depth, or or they go into depth, but, but for depth that isn't really explored, like built up upon, or like later followed up on. Yes, yeah, so there's like a very long scene with Lenin where he's like decoding a secret message. Oh God, yes. That one feels like we could have had a little bit less of that. 
Yes, it's, yeah, it's <laughs> decoding a secret. Again, so proper history involved there. You know, there was a lot of it. Uh, the secret police, the Okrana, infiltrated the communists a lot. And there was this huge problem that they didn't know who was kosher and who was not. But they, if they weren't going to develop it, why do it at all? I think we're really touching on the problem of the film now. Yes. <laughs> it did a lot of things, not all, not always very well. <laughs> Speaking of not doing things very well, so we see sort of the outbreak of the First World War. So lots of meetings with generals, people sort of saying, oh, this is the right thing to do, this is the wrong thing to do. You see, like, I think the Prime Minister at the end of his tether being like, this is going to be the end of us all. Again, another long line of prime ministers being right. And I thought uh, one of the things, again, they sort of touched on, and, and I thought it was quite good, but again, it wasn't built up upon or developed later, was that this fact, I went into it on the podcast, of the whole thing of the World War One makes it interesting, is that all these families, royal families at the top of these countries were linked. And Nicky had this faith that his relationship with the Kaiser, Kaiser Wilhelm, who was his... Oh, his sort of a slightly distant cousin, actually. But um, Alex, it was a first cousin. That he could just send him a message, and it would be okay. Well, they do sort of touch on that in the film, um, where Nikki says, "Oh, I'm going to mobilize my troops, but like Germany's going to know that I don't really mean it." And then immediately after is when he gets the message that they've declared war. The whole relationship between Nikki and Wilhelm is again really interesting. I didn't get into it. if this was a podcast about. The outbreak of the First World War, which I guess it sort of is, but not really. Or one about Nikki in general. I would have gone into this a lot more. But they had this really weird relationship, Nikki and, and Wilhelm. The whole sort of background to it is this sort of power politics problem of throughout the time of Otto von Bismarck, when he was in control of Germany, the big foreign policy was keep Russia happy so you don't fight a two-front war. Wilhelm comes in, immediately angers pisses off the the Russians, loses them. So Wilhelm's trying desperately to get Nicholas back on side. So they had this private correspondence, a lot of private correspondence between them. And Wilhelm would send Nicky these really weird paintings. He would paint of him like in heroic sort of Roman emperor type glory. And they were also many of them outrageously racist, because both these men were incredibly racist. I'm sorry, who, the paintings were depicting Nicky, or...? Nicky would be there, but Wilhelm was the one in the heroic I pose. See, I see. I haven't managed How was to... Nicky meant to take these? Or he was supposed to hang them. He was supposed to hang them up. <laughs> I hope he did. Oh, no, he didn't. If, um, if any of you are interested in seeing some more sort of dramas about this, the BBC did uh, a multi-episode series in the 70s uh, called uh, Fall of Eagles, and which is all about the fall of the uh, German, Russian and Austro-Hungarian royal families. And it's they do it in bits. But they go into great detail about these paintings and uh, about how weird they were and how like Nicholas and Alex didn't know what to think about the whole thing. Classic gift from, gift from the in-laws that you hide in the attic. Exactly. <laughs> Everyone always needs a reason to uh, make fun of the Kaiser, and the film gave another one, really. So the First World War, they they don't really go into much detail, I don't think. I think it all sort of... They have a couple of scenes where, like, it's all terrible. Yeah, just general badness. Lots of people are dying. That's all you need to know. But yeah, they don't sort of go into the whole thing about him going to the front. And then sort of very, very, very quickly the whole revolution happens. 
and uh, we get and we see the uh, rise of uh, Alexander Kerensky. Kerensky. Who I adored. Yes. So Kerensky <laughs> first shows up in 1905 in that revolution, and then through the film, actually, weirdly, he the the film actually gets like his rise quite well, and they sort of keep checking in with him. I thought he was the most compelling character, to be honest. Yes, yeah, so obviously Kerensky, for those who don't remember, he is the socialist-ish revolutionary in nineteen in the first. Well, I guess the in the in the first revolution in nineteen seventeen ends up leading the provisional government. Very sort of handsome blonde man. One of the few men without a moustache as well. Yes, sort of sets him apart. Yeah, he, he, and he also looks a lot young. Like a, the, mo- many of the men in the film look quite old. Nearly all of them either have beards or a moustache. Whereas you know, Kerensky is a sort of clean-cut man, and he's just—he's just trying to do the right thing. He's just trying to be a good guy, and I don't know. I thought he was great. Yeah, they do sort of—they—they uh, they give a very generous depiction of Kerensky, and it's understandable given it's sort of a Western film. Kerensky has this reputation for being like the man who tried to bring democracy. He usually comes across in history fairly well. I think it's. Not difficult to come across well if, like, the guy before you was Nicholas II and the guy after you was Lenin. <laughs> You're always going to kind of look fairly decent by comparison. But he's the one that sends Nicholas away. Yes, yeah. so obviously we have the whole revolution happening. Mm-hmm. Um, it happens more or less as it d- did in real life. You know, Nicholas is on the train. Alex is at home with the kids having measles. Really great scene. I really enjoyed uh, where... So Alex goes out when the revolution starts and still sees all her soldiers there, goes back in, comes out a little bit later and they're all gone. Um, so, you know, I thought that was a, a really good way of doing it without having to have, like, huge scenes in sort of mm. St. Petersburg, you know, probably going to afford them. So just having that, I thought that was really powerful. Yeah. And the scene of Nikki's reaction to it as well, when he comes back and he's with Alex... And he gets really emotional about how he he's failed, essentially. Yeah, I thought that was a, again a really great scene, and also great acting. Yeah, exactly. I think um, the guy playing Nicholas, I think he gets fairly comprehensively outacted by Alex by Janet Suzman, but I thought that was his his best moment, and sort of him walking back. There's a few scenes earlier in the film where they're sort of walking to their main quarters, and there's this big, long sort of marble hall colonnade. Lots and of guards. Lots of guards of various in various uniforms, clearly from every part of the empire. And then there's a scene when he returns to the palace. There's no one in that in that corridor at all, and it's him it's just, just two revolutionaries, isn't it? Right at the door, yeah. and he and they make him open the door rather than open. Up. And Nicky, so Nicky's in this sort of tatty uniform almost. He clearly hasn't slept for days. Um, I thought that was really good. And then when they're on the run, things sort of I don't know meander again. <laughs> Well, it went on the run. They were in oh, exile. On the run, but in exile, yeah. Yeah, so you're Kerensky... And they're moving around. Yeah, Kerensky yeah. sends them away again. It's very much as it is in, in real life. You know, he, he couldn't guarantee their safety. So he has to send them... Well, in, in actually, it's, a, it's interesting. They, there's sort of a debate in historical circles about, about what Kerensky was doing sending them away. There's one version that has them... He, he, all he wanted to do was to send them to Siberia to be safe. There's another version which the film takes up and which a lot of people believe is that Kerensky was trying to get them out of the country. So they're getting them out of St. Petersburg and then eventually they would sort of get him out, sort of out out in the east somehow, maybe through China 
or India, maybe. For whatever reason, it, it didn't happen. Mm. Um, well, you talked about that as well on the podcast, about how no one would take them. Well, that was, yeah, that, so... Yeah. Yeah, they, they sort of touched on how you know, the, his cousin wouldn't take him. And, and then again, there's some re- a really good scene, I think, where he finds that out. I half expected them to go to London and have yes. a whole scene with King George. Uh, luckily, they, they, they restrained themselves from doing that. I thought some of the best parts of the film were actually in these post-revolutionary moments where you see the family adjusting to this new life. But certainly when the daughters start to get a bit more of personality. Yeah, I mean, they're never meant... Like, another long list of these films where the daughters are never given names. I don't think... Anastasia and Olga are. I don't know if Anastasia actually is ever named. Or if he... She, like, they'll, they'll sometimes name them... Like, they'll call out to someone. But they all dress the same. They all kind of look the same. Mm. You have to... You sort of guess... I guess one was Anastasia just because she was the smallest. Mm. That was sort of annoying, but... You sort of saw the three sort of the, the reactions of different members of the family. Nicholas was sort of worried, but also felt had that sort of air of freedom. I guess he could sort of do stuff. The girls seemed to love it. They were not sort of playing and dancing a lot. And then Alex, she she doesn't actually seem all that unhappy in the in the film, which is a bit different from real life. But she's definitely very much like in the corner, always to one side of everything, kind of lost in her own sort of thoughts and everything. Doing mending. Yeah, doing yeah. a lot of mending. So we then progress through the, the sort of the three stages of captivity. There's the phase under the British government, then there's the revolution in uh, October, November. Then you have like the initial guard, which doesn't actually happen or doesn't actually take that long. And then obviously you have the transfer to Yekaterinburg, I really enjoyed the scene on the tra- where the two trains meet. I was just thinking that too. Um, some they're not really in it very much with the two rival yes. factions. So you have like the yeah. government, the main sort of government uh, in Moscow sends this guy, but then the Ural Soviet come with their own train. They basically take them by force. And which... the guy keeps trying to say, you know, my orders. Like they each have their own orders from mm. different different governments really that yeah i think that again if they were going down that route that's a really interesting story there but it's an interesting thing they were hinting at and and that's bro- broadly accurate it's it's one of these things is like i can't say it's inaccurate or accurate because there's lots of dispute about what actually was going on then and this is definitely one interpretation of how it went like they really did want to bring them to moscow but they were sort of ambushed on the way there are other sort of stories where they were kind of there's a lot of back backroom negotiating going mm. along but certainly the Eurosoviet put their foot down and then Moscow had to had to give in uh, and so yeah you get get into Katrinburg you have the the white the whitewashing of the windows mm. there's a scene where one of the guards tries to take something from Alexei I think it was a like a, a gold cross um the sailor that protected him sort of fought mm. back and was shot I thought that was a sort of a good scene, illustrative of how dangerous their situation mm-hmm. was. I don't know who really was sort of inspiring the character of the guy in charge of the house. The sort of old, seemingly genial man. Because the two people who were sort of in charge at Ekaterinburg, neither of them were particularly old or particularly genial. He had the sort of the brutish guy who came first. And then the guy who replaced him, who was basically there to have them killed. Um, this guy didn't really seem to be either of those characters. Those scenes, again, with the family, 
not really knowing what's going on, having this vague hope that maybe they could be saved, you know, you're hearing the guns out away. I thought that was quite well done. But then, of course, they are taken down to the basement and shot, and the film ends with an opening fire. So they don't have the sort of the gruesome scene, the actual scene of the execution, which I may have traumatised a few of you listeners when I was describing. You'll be pleased to hear in the film they did not kill the dog. <laughs> yes, there were no dogs. Dogs no were not dogs there. dogs were harmed. But they um, didn't have the bits where they were wearing the jewels and, and they had to be sort of bayoneted or, or shot in the head after sort of being fired at for a long time. So yeah, that was the film. Three hours. We made it through in the end. I think I should have really recommended everyone that you have a... There was sort of an intermission in our version. We sort of downloaded it off, um, off YouTube. And our version had an intermission in the middle. Really, we should have taken the opportunity to have a nap, I yes. think. <laughs> it's like watching Go- Gone with the Wind. You should really have a nap in the middle. So we've talked about it a bit, uh, about it a bit, but the obviously we're interested in Alex. She's the main reason why why we're all here. Um, what did you think about her portrayal in the film? Thought, I mean, given what I know of her from your podcast, I thought she was actually a bit placid in a way. Like she wasn't really. You didn't see lots of scenes of her sort of giving Nikki advice. She was very know, reactive, I guess. I have to say, the actress was fantastic. She was nominated for for an Academy Award. I can see why. And I think the character they asked her to play, she did well. I agree with you. I think Alex is so much more of an interesting character than the film gave. And they had little scenes where she's, like, egging him on. Yeah, there's one scene right at the beginning where she's sort of telling him off for being too gentle and says he should be more forceful as the czar. Yeah, I think this dialogue lifted straight from um, from some letters they had. I thought that was quite good, but again, they didn't have enough of it. And because they rushed through the war years at a million miles an hour, they didn't have the opportunity to talk about, like, really the the bit of the story where Alex is most front and centre in a sort of political way and really where her foibles and problems really come to like to fruition the most are in those years where she's in charge of the government she's hiring and firing ministers left right and center you didn't have that bit of Rasputin there sort of her and Rasputin in charge so you have the bit where Rasputin is assassinated very weird scene very weird scene completely counter to any description of the assassination of Rasputin I've ever read, where you have them in this sort of opium den, him, Yusupov and his friends. There seems to be some sort of Greek homoerotic lovemaking going on. Very odd. And then the sort of the assassination happens weirdly out of the blue. Like, the only thing I really think they got particularly right about the whole scene is they had Yankee Doodle Dandy playing on the... Mm on the gramophone. But uh, as I say, they didn't really get into that aspect of, of their relationship. Um, I think it's of her as a mother, her as worrying about Alexei, I thought they got quite well. But I was just thinking, actually, there's not really that many scenes of her and Alexei together. Like, that you have scenes of her by herself worrying abstractly, but I just feel like you don't really get a... He doesn't get much to do with her. There is a great scene with Alexei and Nicholas where he's talking about... Alexei's like, why did you abdicate from me? You, like, you've ruined the family. And sort of being told mm. off by his son. But, I don't know, you never really get that much interaction, I think, between... That much meaningful interaction, I should say. 
Yes, I think that like that dialogue is broadly historical. It comes, I think, if I'm right in saying, by uh, the uh, Alex was found out decided to tell the children about what had happened mm. with the um, with uh, Nikki abdicating. Uh, she told the daughters, and the French tutor Julliard tells Alexei, and he writes down that he had broadly that reaction. Obviously, much better film if you actually have him <laughs> saying it to Nikki. Yes, <laughs> as I've been saying throughout the film, I think it was broadly historically accurate. I think actually, in many ways, the historical accuracy became a sort of a burden for the film. So this film is based off Robert Massey's book, Nicholas Alexander, a massive bestseller when it came out in the early 70s. Big source of what I was writing. Obviously, a lot of it has been updated. A lot more information has come to light since uh, the fall of the Soviet Union. But a lot of the... So he has a great load of the dialogue and he has some really interesting observations. It's that this works sort of informs almost everything that comes after it. So there, there are little bits of historical inaccuracy. Like I said, I think Rasputin's murder is a bit weird. The people get killed at the wrong point, or things happen out of order. But I don't think there's an awful lot you can criticise this film from an historical accuracy point of view. But I think there is much to criticise it from a being a good film point of view. Yes, perhaps it was being trying to be too historically accurate and lost sight of any sense of drama or narrative. Or, or plot. Or plot. Like, I think there's an underrated thing, like, historical films, that you can't just do what happened. Like, that's what we have documentaries for. You have to tell a story. And there's so many stories they could have chosen that you'd imagine the story was just me, Nicholas, and Alexandra. That's what the title is. Um, but they're obviously they're also telling the communist story. They're telling a bit of uh, the background about the lower classes. They just don't focus in, I think. It's not a bad film, but it's definitely, I think, not a good film. It hasn't replaced Anastasia as my favourite film about the Romanovs. That's yeah, I mean, for all its foibles, The Last Sars, which is, if you don't know, is a multi-part documentary slash drama, which is on Netflix. It's called The Last Sars. I don't know why they call it plural. It's just about Nikki. That, that has a huge amount of problems from a historical accuracy point of view. They basically take every single kind of lurid, weird accusation and uh, or, and present it pretty much as fact. So it has a lot of problems that way, and it also has some problems with the style where you have the drama happening, then you have historian talking heads talking about it, and you'll have like a weird orgy scene and then immediately hard cut to a historical professor <laughs> talking about it. It's a bit odd. But actually, weirdly, that had plot to it. It had the framing device at the beginning that it's all about Gilliard and uh, Anna Anderson who's uh, who's claiming to be Anastasia. That actually had plot, whereas this, which isn't a documentary, isn't presenting fact, was more accurate and... Less watchable. Less watchable. It did inspire in me a lover, Kerensky, which will probably never leave me now, so... Yeah, I think you saw Kerensky as kind of the enjeuress of the piece. Yes. <laughs> I'm always going to love a student revolutionary with a heart of gold. I think the last thing we need to talk about is the moustaches. Oh, yes. I I mean, that's, for me, my second favourite character was definitely Vlad. Is it Vlad? Vladimir, Vladimir yeah. who was sort of the head of the household, who had this magnificent moustache that James looked up, and it's completely historically accurate. It was his real moustache, and I just, I think it's the best one I've ever seen. I think he broadly actually, I was thinking about this, I think I read somewhere that he's a broad influence on the character of Vlad in Anastasia. That makes sense, yeah. I think he was sort of named for him and he was like in the household. So 
Yeah, he had a spectacular moustache. For those of you who haven't seen the film, it goes out straight past his cheeks. It's 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 very grey and tufty. Yeah. Um, and excellent. I mean, there's a lot of great moustaches in the film, but none can hold a candle. I quite enjoyed Stalin's moustache. Stalin mm-hmm. played by a very young Brian Cox. So do you have anything else you want to say? Um, no, just that it was not a film I would have watched if I had not been married to you. So thank you for enlightening me. But, um, and for boring you and for, for three boring hours. me. <laughs> May not watch it again. I mean, I think I'm be- we're possibly being a bit harsh on it, but I think it is, it's a frustrating film has so much potentially going for it. Some great actors in it. Amazing material. And yet, utterly fails on the grounds of plot. So before we go, and something I didn't trail before uh, this episode, was the fact that last week we went and saw Six. We did. So those of you who don't know, Six is a uh, musical that was originally written by two Cambridge University students that became uh, a big hit on the West End. It's transferring to Broadway after having been in Chicago and toured around the US a bit as well. Maybe you, you can explain Six. Okay, so basically, I guess the the premise of it is that the six wives of Henry VIII are kind of in a girl group, and they're going to have some sort of song battle to decide which of them had the hardest time. Yeah, it's it's sort of portrayed as sort of like a concert. You know, at the end of the musical, like, for the last song, we're encouraged to all stand up and film it on our phones, which is very weird in a... In a theatre. Yes, I felt like, uncomfortable. <laughs> like you're always taught, like, take your phones away, turn them off. Yeah. And yet, uh, this bit you're told to film. So yeah, the, the, each of the six wives uh, have a song. They're all very different songs. I think the most famous of them, the one that you always play, is Don't Lose Your Head, which I think you can probably all guess. Well, I'll give you two guesses. It was Anne Boleyn. That's uh, the one that's been stuck in my head. <laughs> yeah, a, a really powerful ballad number for Jane Seymour about the sort of death of, of Ed, well, about her death before she could see her son grow up. A fantastic song for Anne of Cleves, about her being the queen of the castle. That was my favourite. It shed a whole new light on Anne of Cleves for me. Yeah, yeah I mean, again, it's not something I'm, I want to nitpick from a historical accuracy point of view. They, uh, they got a lot of stuff right. They actually took the trouble to actually include some real history in there. There are some of the songs... They obviously want to portray the wives as very set characters, so they sort of portray Anne Boleyn in a way that's a bit odd, I think, but actually makes sense for the narrative of the song. The costumes are amazing. Loved the costumes. And the staging was sort of simple and great. I really like the fact that, because obviously it's portrayed as a concert, that they had the band in the back, they were all women, like it was an entirely female production, which I thought was a really interesting thing and not something you see very often on the West End. And, I mean, the theatre, it's a smallish theatre, the arts theatre in, in the West End was was, was absolutely chuckle-rock full. And here I should probably say that um, we got our tickets very kindly gifted by my mother. So shout out to her. She's an avid listener of the pod. Yes, thanks, Nancy. It was, it was, <laughs> it was a really generous present. And, and Music Club, I'm meaning to see for 
absolutely ages. If you have the opportunity to see it, it's it's toured the UK, it's toured the US, if it tours again, or if you live in London or uh, or New York or anywhere where it's on, you have to see it. If you can't see it, just listen to the soundtrack. It's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, very fun. Would would that one I would go to again. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 